welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. I call this Free to Roam. In the desert, you are free to go. You are free to stay. You are free to die. You are free to live. You are free to roam. But there you are, sitting and staying and staring at the sky as your skin reddens and blisters. Your hands become dry. Your mouth becomes parched. Your mood becomes stale. Still, you have a choice to move left or right, ahead or back, or walk in zigzags. A map is good. Yes, a map. Something to give you guidance. Something to call you from the familiar to the unknown. All you need is a decision. You are free to roam. But you stay. You don't go. It's hot. But you don't care that much. You have enough to exist simply. As your memory starts to fade of your first school dance and your first kiss, your dreams start appearing like stars in the desert night sky. Dreams shimmering of hopeful things, but your dreams are just amusements, entertaining fictions that occupy the time as you sit. You are free to roam. You don't have all knowledge, but you have all you need. Roam where? To a better life? Yes, life. A destination to itself, a place where dreams can be made real with the proper amount of compromise. But where you are is where you are comfortable. Even though you are running out of water and your body is smelling more than it needs to be. Every hour you do nothing is an hour you cancel something grand happening. But something can happen anytime. You are free to move, to dance, to wiggle, run, free. You are afraid, terrified what what could happen if you try. You could die here in the desert, you know. But in the desert, you at least know how your end will end. Living here in satisfied suffering, what's ahead could be, should be better, but could be worse. It's easy to hope for the best and romantic to journey to victory. But why is all that nonsense better than just sitting here? You are free to roam. Holding on to what is known, you convince yourself that this is what it means to live in the now, to sit and sip at the simple sufferings of life when you have been made to drink gallons of joy is a waste. Don't miss this chance. Make a step and another step can follow. You are free to roam. So Ed has been our artist in residence this month. Thank you, Ed. It's been fun having you and hearing your, uh, 
your versions, your uh, reflections and musings on Moses and others. My name's Micah. If we have not met, nice to see you all. Uh, I want to invite you to turn to Exodus 14. We will be there. While you are turning there or typing there, I'll just say a couple things um, before we jump in. One, we are trying to gather more and more of you so that this gathering on Sunday mornings becomes more of a reflection of the people that come here. Uh, We're calling it liturgy. Uh, Liturgy just means the the work of the people. And so increasingly, we want to hear more and more of your voices. Um, We've kind of brainstormed some ideas about how that could happen. So today you'll hear Andy is going to read part of a psalm as um, we've saved a little bit of singing and communion for after the teaching. So he'll be doing that. Um, you've heard in the past somebody has read uh, prayers or has offered prayer, uh, call to worship, responsive readings, any number of those kinds of things. If you're at all interested in that and would be willing, we're trying to just put a database of people together who would be open to doing that. So Chris, uh, who spoke last week, our intern, is doing that. Um, I'm not sure if Chris is here. Uh, he was earlier, but there he is upstairs. So if you want to email Chris or talk to him, it's chris at awakencommunity.com. He's the dashing young fellow up in the balcony. <laughs> so if you could do that, that'd be awesome. Who's engaged to be married in about a month? Sorry. <laughs> I'm like, oh gosh, that's great. We're going to delete that from the podcast, I'm pretty sure. <clears throat> the other thing, uh, big news, gang, big news, St. James. So we, have a, we are scheduling a meeting either Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday of this week to sign a lease for a new space. How about that? Uh, I'm really excited and really nervous because um, th- you, you can't like back out now. Like you sign this and it's like real, you know, it's sort of an, it's not an idea anymore. It's our new reality. So I'm a little nervous just because you get nervous for these kinds of things. But I'm super excited. Um, we have talked about a, an event that some have heard about on uh, November the 2nd. We were calling it the christening of St. James. And we, because of the unknown of this last week and whether we could pull that off, We're postponing that, so take that off your calendars if you have it, and add these. November the 9th and November the 12th, we'll have two events. They'll be the same event. It's essentially an open house. We'll do hors d'oeuvres and wine and drinks, and uh, that will be available at St. James. Times are forthcoming. But the point is to give an opportunity for you all to come and see the space, for us to pray together, uh, for you to hear the vision for uh, the space and what what we think it's going to cost to kind of make this transition. Um, And so know that that's coming November the 9th and November the 12th. Uh, Same event. You don't have to attend both unless you really want to. So uh, mark that down. Sound good? Okay, Exodus. What's... At the church, yes, at St. James, yep. Um, And the hope is, uh, which is all in the lease, November 1st, we'd have access to the building to do a number of the changes we want to make, and then Christmas Eve, friends, will be our first gathering at St. James. It's going to be great. I'm so excited. We've got to figure out a way to fire up that organ for Christmas Eve, you know? That'll be wild, just like... I think we actually have somebody who plays the organ, so... (laughs) All right. I'm off track. Here we go. Exodus chapter 14. Last week, actually, Chris talked about Exodus 14 and this idea of of when Egypt comes over the hill chasing you. And uh, we're actually going to stay in Exodus 14, not because Chris didn't do a good job. He did a great job, by the way. Well done, Christopher. Very fun to hear your voice. Um, No, but there is just so much in Exodus 14 that I want to continue to kind of explore this chapter. And I just want to observe a couple of things that are happening in here. 
And, and Surgeon General's warning, this is a teaching that is less to do with the hard science and more to do with the soft science, if you know that distinction. This has less to do with um, kind of the, the, uh, the building blocks of religion or theology or life with God and more to do with uh, the heart. And some things that are said in this text that I think are just astonishing and are quite uh, transformational if we, if we have ears to hear them. So that's what I want to do. I feel, uh, I say this a lot, but I feel like, you know, a kid who left and was sent with a backpack to go and find things. And so I've brought a few back for you today. I hope you enjoy them. Uh, so Exodus 14, stand if you will, and we'll read from verses 15 and following. It says this, <clears throat> Then the Lord said to Moses, Why? Are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved in front and stood behind them. Coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel, throughout the night the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, and so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Pray with me. God, we are, here we are, and here you are, as your church, we gather again in this place, and we do so because we believe that you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus, you have done something definitive in the life, death, and resurrection of your son, and you have invited us to partner with you in the ongoing work of redemption, and so God, we gather, not out of ritual, or not out of routine, or out of duty, but out of joy, that uh, we are your people, and that this story is the story of the Israelites in the Exodus, but it's also our story. And so God, help us to live in it to the degree that we can. Help us to see you and hear you and sense you in ways that uh, call us out of darkness and into light, into who you've called us to be. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You can have a seat. Um, can you turn me down just a hair, Johnny, in terms of that mic? That'd be awesome. Uh, so let's dive in here. Exodus chapter 14, verse 15 begins with, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. This is an all play. I'm curious, what is wrong with that verse? <clears throat> What's happening here? Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. What's the problem with that verse? If you were here last week, keep in mind what Chris said, very important. Say it, say it louder. You did it. Yeah. The problem with it is the verse before it. If you read verse 14, it says, look at what it says in verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Verse 15. What are you looking at me for, God says? Why are you crying out to me? Or move, act, hit or fight or do something. Right? I mean, we have be still. If you want to see God move, you want to see God's power, you want to see God on display, be still. Very next verse. Come on, people, let's go. Move it or lose it, sister. We got things to do. I'm imagining what God's doing. So we have this interesting juxtaposition, paradox, um, seeming 
contradiction in the text where God says, you only need to be still. And then God is saying, move, act, do something. I think it's very, very interesting. Uh, What does it mean to be still, but to move and act? What does it mean to be still in God and then to move and act? It seems to me that there are two different levels being explored here in this passage. On the one hand, there's the internal, be still. And then on the other hand, there's the external, move, act, do something. And what's important, I think, what's important for us to see is that these two things are not mutually exclusive. They, it is not an either or. It is not a pendulum swing to one side and say, oh, it's all about contemplation. It's all about the quietness of the heart. It's all about you know, thinking and praying and being. Nor is it all about, come on, let's go. Let's do something. You know, uh, nobody's going to help you. You got to pull up your bootstraps, move it along. It's not one or the other, but it's both. And so often in religion and religious circles, you find that when there's something, when there are two opposing ideas, you find that the pendulum swings from either to one side or the other. F. Scott Fitzgerald says this. He says that, uh, oh, you know what? I'm going to save that. That's too good. I'm saving that. Um, But, (laughs) oh gosh, I'm way ahead of myself already, guys. Um, So you have these two different ideas. Be still, but move. I want to suggest that our doing has to come from our being. When we think about life and we think about spiritual life and we think about what does it mean to follow God, I want to suggest that this passage is inviting us to consider the difference between doing and being, but also that one comes before the other. That our doing... Our activity in the world, our action, our response to God's invitation has to begin somewhere else, and it has to do with our being. And I think a lot of times we make the mistake of not paying attention to our being, because if we're honest, what's judged, what's seen, what, is, uh, what we're reviewed on at work is not the condition of our heart or the state of our soul, but rather what you produce, what you do. And so we often focus on our doing, hoping that it will create some kind of being that we will do these things and hopefully it will create some sort of character in us. And I want to suggest that that is foolish and unwise. And the scriptures tell a very different story. That there is an invitation to a way of being human that then informs your doing or your activity or your production or your creativity in the world. And that when we get those two out of sync or out of line, We are out of balance. Have you ever driven in a car with a tire that's out of balance? It is a nightmare. I mean, especially the faster you go, the worse it gets. If you apply that analogy, and we pay so much attention to our doing and not our being, and we're out of balance or out of sync, the faster you go, the worse it gets. So then, doing is external. It's the things we produce. It's the things we create. It's the things that the work of our hands, the, 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 the movement of our feet, the, the, the activity of our life. It's the external. And whether we're aware of it or not, it is the product of our inner life. It is the product of being. Being is the work of the place from which we live. It's the state of our soul or the condition of our heart. And what seems to be obvious in this passage, at least to me, is that the reality that the spiritual life requires something from each of these areas. 
And Israel's invitation to begin in verse 14 is to rest in Yahweh. Be still and then. What does it mean to rest in someone? Or when's the last time you rested in somebody? I can think of, if you have small children, that moment when like a, a little baby just like nestles up on your chest and falls asleep. Now they can't do anything else, so maybe that's an unfair example. But <laughs> my six-year-old, uh, those moments which are f- few and far between when, when they are willing to stop and I'm willing to stop. Hey, preacher, how's it going? Long enough to put something down and to pay attention to what's happening in front of you. And truth be told, I love it when they get sick. When they get a fever, because they're really kind of sluggish and they just want to like nestle up. And people are like, oh, you should just give them ibuprofen. And I'm like, no, you lose the magic then. (laughs) You know, that moment when they just want to like, that's terrible, but it's true. Very true. When someone rests in you, To rest in somebody is to give up control. To rest in somebody else is to relinquish control. To rest in somebody else is to trust the other. And so we return to when's the last time we rested in somebody? And I think these two come to the surface. To rest is to give of yourself to somebody else. I mean, silly little example, but I'm sitting with River, the dog, our dog recently. She's commandeered this one chair in our, in our front room, and that's her spot. Like, if you sit in her chair, she kind of like wanders up and is like, dude, what's up? Get out of my chair. So I'm sitting in her chair the other day, and she comes over and hops up. And you know how dogs, they kind of like circle before they sit down sometimes? And she's kind of like all verklempt that I'm in her spot, and finally she just plops down, and so I just, you know, that little spot right behind their ears? Gosh, I love that spot. So I'm just like, you know, nestling little river. And shortly after, she stops for long enough. And, you know, she, you can see her, like her little eyes twitching. And she's like totally asleep. And her head is literally like resting in the palms of my hands. When's the last time you were there with someone? where you were resting at peace in someone else. I think that we long for it, whether we know it or not. And I'm curious, or maybe I'm proposing the possibility that this is why God says rest in me. Trust. Be still. Rest. And how long has it been since you did that? Israel's doing has to come from their being. And the moment they get that, rest, be still. They're invited to do something. They're invited to act. Their doing comes from their being. The spiritual life is very paradoxical in that sense. It requires both contemplation and action. Richard Rohr, one of my favorite authors, this short little chubby Franciscan priest with no hair. I love this guy, man. I have a man crush on this guy. He has. They started a center for contemplation and action. I mean, who does that? A Franciscan priest does that because they get it. That it requires both being and doing, and that our doing has to come from our being. 
And so I would just pause today as your pastor, as a spiritual leader in this community and say, listen, gang, to not pay attention to your inner life is foolishness, and you do so at your own peril. It is not weak. It is not more feminine to pay attention to your feelings and what happens on the inside. That is a lie, and it's not true. And when we believe it, we do it to our peril. Our doing has to come from our being. So Israel in, is invited, rest in Yahweh. And then, and then when you get there, move, act, participate, respond to the invitation to do this thing in God's ongoing story. So we have be still, we have go forward in the first part of verse 15. Now look at verse 19. It says this, when the angel, uh, then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. Then skip back to verse uh, 20 of chapter 13. It says, after leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Did you hear the paradox there? Let me help see if I can flesh this out. All, this is an all play. How would you describe a pillar? Shout it out. Immovable? Sturdy? What else? Uh, what, say it louder. Tall? Support? Structure? Cylindrical, very nice, good adjective, love it. Yes, you must be in a master's program somewhere. It's popping, snapping. What else? We've got it, we nailed it. Support, solid, a foundation. How would you describe a cloud? Nothing, I heard. Can't grasp it, light-giving, nebulous, transparent, unidentifiable, cumulus nimbus. (laughs) Yeah, unpredictable. unpredictable. And fire, how about fire? You know, this elusive thing that's there and then it's gone, but it's, it's real, but it's... What does it mean to say that the people of God are led by paradox? I mean, when we think about religion and we think about the Bible and we think about God, we want... Tangible, ironclad, certainty, black and white, right and wrong. Tell me what I need to know. And yet, right in the middle of the story, the biggest story of all the scriptures, arguably, we find the people of God led by a paradox. I just think that is fascinating. Back to F. Scott Fitzgerald. Two opposing ideas. He says this, the test of first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still have the ability to function. (laughs) I would say that that's the mark of spiritual maturity. He says it's the the mark of first-rate intelligence. To be able to hold two opposing ideas in your mind and still function... I would say that the degree to which you learn how to hold the tension between seemingly opposing ideas is the degree to which you're maturing in your spiritual life. 
because I think it's safe to say that in the scriptures, when you read it, to be led by Yahweh is often paradoxical. It's often uncertain, or maybe I should say it is filled with opportunities for faith. Right? And to be led by the antithesis of that, Egypt in this story, is to be led by certainty and that which is solid underfoot. You know what you're getting. It's predictable. You can quantify it. I mean, listen to the Israelites groaning in this story. They're like, Moses, why did you bring us out here? Did you bring us out here to die? Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here to die? I mean, seriously, why can't we go back to where we know what we get? Melons and onions and garlic and leeks and a side of slavery? And that's what they want. I think we do a disservice to people as pastors and as the church when we say that the Bible is the answer book. And that whatever question that you have, whatever uncertainty you have, all you need is the scriptures, and all you have to do is read it and obey it. Because if we're honest with each other, I think our experience would tell us otherwise. That, quite frankly, it's just not that simple. And quite frankly, it's not that easy. And so when we say, just pray a little more, or have a little bit more faith, or just read the Bible and obey it, it's a disservice to people because we recognize, because we, or I should say, we don't recognize that we are being led by paradox. That this whole thing is an invitation to faith. Faith is very different than certainty. Gang, at the end of the day, truth telling by the pastor, at the end of the day, why I do what I do, why we started this church, why I get up here every single week and preach and teach this Bible and this story, it's not because I am 100% certain. It's because I believe it's true. And there's a difference there. I remember being in an interview process at one point and they said, well, do you know that's true? And I said, well... I believe that that's true. No, do you know with certainty that that's true? Well, let's unpack that for a second. Is not every utterance of knowledge in the end actually an utterance of faith? I believe that to be true. Now, I have very good reason, and I've hung my life on this story and we've started this community around this story, and there are stories and ways in which we have seen the resurrection power of Jesus at work in our community, and so we have good reason to believe that it's true. But the whole thing is an invitation to faith. We're led by a God who shows up as a pillar of cloud, who is both a rock and a mother hen who wants to gather you in, who is both a cloud, you see what I'm saying? And so it's not an invitation to, well, here, it's not two plus two equals four all the time. It's not linear in that sense, but it is hard work sometimes. And so I, I share that not to upset apple carts, but to say, I want to recognize the reality of what we're talking about here and what, we're being, what, we're, what I'm asking of you every week. And knowing that 
there are days when I prepare for an Easter sermon and I think, what if it didn't happen? Resurrection, I mean, that's a bad day when the pastor before Easter is like, what if resurrection is not true? But it's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you. I've had conversations with some of you. And so I find it very comforting to see this story written thousands of years ago and right in the middle of it, we have God leading the people as a paradox of cloud and a pillar of cloud. It's fascinating to me. Very comforting, actually. One more thing I want to just hover over as we try to pull some things out of this text. I would say it this way. Who God is and what God does. So we have be still, go forward, our doing and our being. We have being led by this paradoxical or being invited into this life of faith. Who God is and what God does. There's a guy named Parker Palmer. He wrote a book called Let Your Life Speak. And he, he argues in it that no matter where you are in your life, there is always something, a kernel that's true about you that always comes out. So whether you were in sixth grade, 12th grade, college, as an adult, that there's something that's true about you that comes out in whatever situation you find yourself in. Let your life speak. So it's a, help, it's a process of discerning and helping people figure out, like, well, okay, what am I? What, who am I? Some people call it your default. Other people would say it's your greatest passion or your gift. I would say it's your name. It's your identity. It's who you are. It's what God has put in you from the beginning. For example, my wife, Laura, many of you know her. No matter where she finds herself, people feel held and known and listened to. And it's always been that way. It's true about who she is. In the scriptures, often the first verse or the first verses of a story or say, like, for example, a psalm will tell you almost everything you need to know about what's to come. In the same way, it's sort of the essence of the psalm or the essence of the story. Like, let your life speak. Like, this is true about Laura. For me, I have always found myself teaching. In the scriptures, I want to suggest that the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and the first stories in the first book of the Bible act in the same way. And they show us nearly everything we need to know about God, about ourselves, and about the world that we live in. And that the biblical writers know this and often will take those motifs or those key words or those nuances and they'll pick them out of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and they will drop them into whatever story it is they're telling. Read Mark chapter 1 and Genesis 1 on your own time and you'll see what I'm talking about. I think it's present in this text as well. And it shows me who God is and what God does. Let me see if I can show you. A couple of slides here. Genesis chapter 1 uh, and 2, you get a few key ideas. Here are a few of them. Number one, there's the sea. So it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God hovered or God was uh, hovering over the sea. And the sea is often a, a symbol for chaos and tumult and um, destruction or evil in the ancient Near East. So in Revelation, when it says, and the sea will be no more, it's not a description about water. It's a description about what that symbolizes, okay? So that's present in Genesis chapter 1. Then you have the Spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim, hovering over the water, and then you have God creating or separating the water, separating the, the in, in day two, the water, and creating a midst or an expanse. 
and, and then the rest of creation is then fill, or fills this expanse. Okay, you all tracking with me so far? So this is the beginning of the story. Now take a look at Exodus, what we just read, particularly verses 21 and 22, have all kinds of key words. Just buzzers would be going off if you're reading this. There is a strong east wind, wind, ruach, the word east. So it literally reads, east means from the beginning. So it says there is a strong spirit wind from the beginning that blew the sea back. The word sea, uh, uh, certainly also there. Uh, then you have Israel went into the sea, and this word tavek is, uh, is, is the word that's translated expanse or firmament in Genesis 1. And it's the first time this word is used since Genesis 1, and it's totally 100% not necessary in the Exodus story. It's like extra in the grammar. You don't need this word, but the writer says, hey, guess what's happening here? God is doing this again, creating an expanse for Israel to move through. Why? Because this is what God does, and this is what God is like. God pulls the light out of the darkness. The Spirit of God hovers over the water, the chaos, the tumult, the craziness of your life. This is where God hovers, in the darkness. And what does God do? God pulls the light out of the darkness, calls it good, opens up a space and says, walk into it, become more and more and more and more of who you are and who I created you to be. Why? Because this is what I do. Friends, you could listen to me week after week and think, I think he's making this up. I mean, this is really interesting stuff, but I mean, really, seriously, I bet my life on it that the writer of this story knew exactly what they were doing. And they had Genesis 1 in mind when they wrote Exodus 14, 21, and 22. And there's precedence for it all over in ancient Near Eastern literature. So what do we learn from this? Who is God and what is God like? I'm curious, as we close this morning, what your understanding, your assumptions about who God is and what God is like. And if it's not the God who hovers over the darkness and the quiet, seemingly dead places of our lives, just like a mother brooding, it says, or, or hovering like a bird, and then pulls light out of darkness and says, oh, this is good, and creates an expanse for you to walk through and into and become this is who God is, and this is what God does. So as we close this morning, I'm just fascinated by this story, and I'm so encouraged, and I'm so, uh, I think it's a, it takes a lot of pressure off in a lot of ways. I want to invite you to something that we do every week, or I'm sorry, every month, which is to celebrate the Lord's table where we take bread and we dip it in a cup. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he was with his friends and he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. And this is a cup, a new covenant written in my blood. And when you drink of it, when you eat of this and you drink of this, do it in remembrance of me. Remember who I am, remember what I've done. Remember who you are and who I'm calling you to be. Because this is what I do. So as you come this morning, I'm not sure where it is that all this lands with you or what God might be inviting you to, but I just want to encourage you to really sit in it. We've saved some, some music for the end here, and we want to sing together and receive communion and worship. Um, 
And so sing these songs out as they connect with what, where you're at in your heart. Just belt them out. Uh, let me offer a word of prayer. If you're serving communion, I ask you to come forward. There's red wine in the red cup and white grape juice in the green cup. There's gluten-free options up at the bar. Um, so if you're serving, come on forward. Pray with me. God, as we gather in this place like we do, we want to pause and slow down enough to see and hear and pay attention to our insides and what you're doing in our hearts. We recognize that our being informs our doing, and we want to be people who rest in you, who learn to rest in each other, as hard as that is at times. We want to be people who are both still and active in the world. And God, we thank you that you are uh, you're bigger than anything that we could ever try to put, any box we could ever put you in or try to put you in, that you are more beautiful, more powerful, more loving, more gracious, more hope-filled, more redemptive than we could ever imagine. And we say yes to the invitation to follow, to be invited into this life of faith. And we're thankful that you are who you are and you do what you do. And so do it now in our hearts. Come and receive the Lord's table. Isaiah 35 says, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will greatly rejoice and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to splendor. Carmel, or the splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come and he will come to save you. There's a line in that song, could all, could all that has been lost ever be found? And at least to me, the God of this story and the God that we know in Jesus says a resounding yes and that's the good news of the gospel so grace and peace i love you guys i'm pretty stoked to be able to say i'm your pastor so see you next week find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community. Or on Twitter, Awaken Community. See you next time.